Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At the Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Tacitinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Nicole Kahn of the From Law Group. Hey, Nick. Hey, everyone. So, Nick, we're joined today by a true crusader, a living legend in her field, a lawyer, author, speaker, professor, former dean of Valparaiso University Law School, Andrea Lyon of Lyon Law. Andrea has been called the Angel of Death Row and has a book by the same name, appropriately enough, which should give our audience a good idea of what she does for a living. Before private practice, Andrea served as a public defender, trying over 130 homicide cases and discontent with an ordinary career, went on to become the first woman in the country to serve as lead attorney in a death penalty case. She then not only smashed through that glass ceiling, but kept going, successfully arguing 19 times in 19 death penalty cases that her clients should be spared from capital punishment. Andrea has dedicated her career to advocating for justice, particularly for those on death row. In addition to representing her clients, she founded the Capital Resource Center, representing all inmates in Illinois on death row. She's taught at several law schools. She's won numerous awards for her work, and she's pretty much the lawyer so many of us wanted to be when we first thought about going to law school. As millennials might say, Andrea is living her best life. (laughs) (laughs) Andrea, welcome. Well, thank you. That's a very kind introduction. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you. So before we started recording today, you you mentioned something that really caught my attention, which was that you were on a radio program this morning and that you ran into a phenomenon that I think you often run into, which is that uh, people tend to conflate you with your clients, or at least with the crimes that your clients have committed. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, it just it, it it isn't true, of course, everywhere you go and in front of every judge and in, to every prosecutor. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but you do tend to get treated as though you committed the murder your client is charged with, and is or that you think murder is a good idea, or <laughs> that you think murder should never be punished. Um, like that you're defending the crime. And yeah, that. that you you sort of think, oh, good. Let's we haven't had a murder in a, a week. Let's have another one. Uh, right. it, it's it's a very interesting phenomena. Part of it is because I think sometimes the prosecution or the judge want to yell at the client and they sort of can't because the client's represented. So they yell at me instead. Yeah. In your book, you mentioned the like media portrayal of like the slimy defense attorney. Do you think that has something to do with it? I do think it has something to do with it. Um, I do think that there's this view that we are all these, um, you know, terrible people who run around looking for those technicalities to get our guilty clients off. And, uh, you know, we're not we're not a part of the justice system. We're trying to stop justice from happening. Mm. And that's a very unfortunate view of us. Um, part of that is uh, a media-driven view. It's 20 years or more, however many years it's been of law and order, in which uh, – you know, prosecutors and police are always wonderful, and if they get the wrong person, they immediately correct their mistake and apologize. Well, which I is mean, just... Jack McCoy was the best. We can agree <laughs> on that, right? My daughter certainly would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's just not reality. Um, and, you know, I think, to be fair, prosecutors have a very difficult job because they have two masters. One mm-hmm. of the masters is to do justice. The other master is to win. And that one often holds sway over the first. So it occurred to me when I was coming over here this afternoon that were I in your position, I think one of the most difficult things 
for me would be the daily pressure that you must face. I think most of our audience is comprised of lawyers and other professionals who understand what it's like to have a high stakes, high pressure kind of job. But with you, your clients' lives are literally in your hands. What's that like to live with on a daily basis? It's very hard to describe. Um, if if I were to tell you how emotionally, intellectually, in every other kind of way difficult it is, I'm sure you'd believe me. But it's kind of like trying to describe childbirth. Nobody thinks you're lying, but it's just not susceptible to description, really. And if you, if I dwell on the risks to my client and the the exposure that my clients have too much, I can become frozen by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to some degree, you have to compartmentalize and just work the case. Right. Uh, but to some degree, it's impossible to ignore because you really are, you're trying two cases. You have to prepare the, the case, the murder charge that your client is facing, whatever other charges he or she might be facing, and the case for his or her life, which requires knowing everything there is to know, good and bad and in the middle, about your client's life, and often requires traveling down a road full of pain. I would imagine. Can we break that down a little bit, the two sure. phases of trial? It just explain for our audience what you mean by that. Well, in the United States, we have what's called a bifurcated proceeding. Um, the same jury makes this, both decisions, but the jury first decides if the client is guilty or not guilty of the charges or uh, perhaps of a lesser included or whatever that might be. If they find that he or she is guilty of a capital crime and they find what's called an aggravating factor, which is it's first-degree murder plus, like first-degree murder of a police officer in the discharge of his duties or first-degree murder of someone in the course of an armed robbery or some other kind of crime. And the aggravating factors vary enormously from state to state, and there are 60 of them in the federal system. Um, so there's a lot. Yeah. Um, and if they find that the defendant you know, is uh, both guilty and that at least one aggravating factor is there. The jury then makes a decision as to whether the punishment should be life in prison or death. Um, Usually that's the choice. In some jurisdictions, there's more than one choice, uh, but most places that's the choice. You talk about, I've heard you reference the the trial stage as kind of the law portion and the sentencing phase is more of the emotional portion. Do you think that that's accurate? No, um, there's no such thing as a trial that it doesn't involve emotions. People do not vote based on rational thought. Um, All we have to do is look at the extraordinary people we elect to have we had any questions about that. Um, But the question is much more narrow on in the trial, right? It you know was there a homicide? Did the defendant do it? Was it a first degree? These are more narrow questions. Whereas the, the the question that the jury is answering in the penalty phase is a moral question um, and an emotional question. And that is, can I understand who this person is and how they got to be who they are? And need I fear them anymore? If your jury is still frightened of the client, still thinks the client can do harm, they'll kill him. What? How even you, even though life imprisonment is the alternative in all cases, right? Not in every case in every jurisdiction, but generally speaking, that is the alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Kentucky has other alternatives so the jury can vote between life with a minimum of 25, life with a minimum of 35, life without parole or death. So they have a multitude of choices. Um, so there, there are some differences state to state. That being said, most of the time that is the choice. And people who think that the defendant might be dangerous while locked up will vote to kill him. So is that a defensive reaction by the jury or are they acting in defense of others? I'm just trying to understand the psychology behind that. It's difficult to explain, but remember that the only people that can sit on a jury in a death penalty case are people who believe the death penalty is appropriate. Right. Anyone who thinks that this is the only opinion you can hold in the United States that disqualifies you from jury service. If you do not believe in the death penalty, you are excused for cause. And if you are a juror who could do it if it was bin Laden or you know something of that level, mm. the prosecution can use their peremptory challenge to get rid of that person. So you end up with a politically homogeneous jury right. uh, that is very conviction-prone, very pro-police tend to be. Yeah. And fear is a big part of their lexicon. And you have to address it. Sure. And that, that's an interesting point that you just brought up. You kind of breeze through it, I think, because you're so used to it. But uh, you could get up on the jury stand while jury selection is going on and say, I'm a neo-Nazi and you know a million other horrible things. And that doesn't automatically disqualify you from the jury, right? But Correct. in a capital murder case, if you say I'm morally or ethically or religiously opposed to capital punishment, you're out. You're gone. That's right. And it used to be a bright line. Um, in the original case with Witherspoon versus Illinois, there was a bright line. You had to say, I cannot consider it. Mm. Now it's more of the judge looks him in the eye under a case called Wainwright versus Witt, which says, I, you know, I heard some waffling language, but in my view, they could never consider it so excused for cause. Um, so it presents an extra challenge. And it is, in my view, one of the reasons that you see as many erroneous convictions in death penalty cases, whether the death penalty was obtained or not, because you have such a politically homogeneous jury, they are less likely to question each other. I, okay, I'm seriously going to nerdville here, but- um, Go for it. That's what we love. Uh, there's, there was a study that was done um, that uh, was published in Law and Human Behavior. What they did was they uh, videotaped a trial like an hour and a half sort of smushed up trial and showed it to 12 uh, mock juries, six of which had both people that could be excluded for cause because they didn't believe in the death penalty and people who believed in the death penalty and six that didn't, you know, that were all death qualified. And then they had them watch the same videotape trial and then they deliberated and they whatever it is that social scientists do, turn that into numbers some kind of way. <laughs> and what they found was, unsurprisingly to me, is that the death-qualified juries convicted more often convicted of higher offenses. But what was really interesting was the mixed jury got the facts right more often. Interesting. Because they'd argue with each other because they didn't see the world quite the same way. And so they said, wait, wait a minute. Was he standing such and such a place? And they, yeah. and they were yeah, actually so deliberating they were. as opposed to just groupthink. It it can have that effect, and of course, there's the process effect too. Because you're, if you're talking to a jury before they've heard a single witness about punishment, it feels to the jury naturally like the trial is just a formality. Mm -hmm. Why would the judge be talking with us about 
penalty if there was any question about guilt. Right. right? Innocence uh, until proven guilty is really not accurate for a lot of these trials, I would say. Would you well, agree? it's hard. It's counterintuitive anyway. I mean, if you don't, you know, if you're, you read that the, the there's been a bunch of burglaries in your neighborhood, Nick, and you read that, um, you know, they've arrested somebody, you don't say to yourself, ah, but I presume I'm innocent. You just say to yourself, I'm glad they got the guy. Because that's the yeah. natural yeah. human reaction. It, it doesn't make you a bad person. It is just counterintuitive to presume innocence anyway, let alone after this process. Yeah. And here the process embeds that, right. But that that is counter to the trend that we're seeing in public opinion generally in the U.S., right? Yes. So I was looking at um, historical Gallup polls before I came over here, and Gallup every two years asks the question, are you in favor of the death penalty for a person convicted of murder? Now, I realize the phrasing of that is probably a little bit problematic, but that's the question they've been asking forever, so they stick with it for um, comparative purposes. And support has fallen from 80% in 1994 to just under 50% in 2016. It's even more if the question you ask after a conviction for first-degree murder, would you prefer the death penalty or life without parole, then the number the number of people that are for the death penalty goes down even more. So you give them the option. Mm -hmm. And then what I thought was also very fascinating, which I suspect I know where you're going to take it and I want to go there, that's why I'm asking it, is that there's significant differences to the answers if you break it down by race, yes. with uh, 63% of whites supporting the death penalty, 40% of Hispanics, 36% of blacks. There's been a slight uptick over the last couple of years, but we don't have to get into why that's the case. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you, the, the racial disparity in opinion? Well, that tells you that people who understand what it is to be oppressed worry they might be part of that oppression and worry that they might make mistakes. Um, and unfortunately, particularly for African Americans, uh, we have a long and ugly history of killing black people with impunity. And this is, uh, Reverend Jackson uh, refers to this as legal lynching. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, that we, most of what has happened in the criminal justice system has happened since Reconstruction. And the 13th Amendment doesn't allow for slavery except (laughs) if somebody has committed a crime. And what we saw in the South was uh, an enormous uptick in finding almost anything to be criminal so that you could lock up black people, in particular black men, and force them to work for free. Put them in a chain gang. Yeah, essentially. Um, And... So that memory for older African Americans and for Hispanics of being mistreated by the law informs their concerns about the fairness of the death penalty, whatever their moral position might be, first of all. And for younger people who have seen what happens now because of the advent of camera phones— they're very wary as well. Mm-hmm. I actually just saw an article yesterday. There is a, a, a case going up above uh, into the Supreme Court of North Carolina right now to talk about the strategic bleaching, as what they, the term they refer to it as, of juries in the South in particular because of this uh, kind of underlying racism that the article referred to it as, as legal enforcement of segregation in some ways. 
Um, I mean, I think that that's true. And we certainly with the Curtis Flowers case that was just uh, reversed after trial number six, six trials, same guy, um, because the same prosecutor keeps excluding everybody black from the jury. And Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court reversed it for, I guess, trial number seven. But Mississippi is an interesting place. I I was speaking to someone who does defense work there, and she said she tried very hard to get anyone to run against this prosecutor, and they're afraid to. Why is that? It's entrenched power. Uh, If they lose, they feel like they won't be able to practice in the county anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of political considerations you have to think about when you're doing a death penalty case. To to underestimate what the politics are is a big mistake. I mean, sometimes sometimes people ask me, you know, what's the first motion you file in a death penalty case? I'm like, motion to continue this to an uneven numbered year. I do not want to be part of any prosecutor's re-election campaign or any judge's re-election campaign. The case is going to be hard enough. I'd like to try it when nobody is mugging for the cameras. And our judge's understanding of that? Well, I don't actually file that. Oh. <laughs> I do do I my best you, okay. to get, to get it off of the uh, – to, to, to not be so directly affected by the politics of what's going on in that particular county or, or state or jurisdiction. I know one of the things you actually highlighted in a couple in a number of the cases that you talked about in your book were the politics and how I'm thinking of um, you referred to him as Lonnie Fields in your book mm-hmm. about on uh, just some background for our listeners. This was a man who went in and had shot his ex-wife's defense attorney uh, or a, a divorce attorney rather, and the judge who was trying and Andrea represented him uh, in his death penalty case. And you talked about how much politics came into that because of how publicized the case was and how everyone knew, you know, all of the other judges knew that judge. And could you talk a little bit about? Yeah, it it, it added a level of complexity to the case. Um, First of all, he killed a judge and a lawyer in front of 27 eyewitnesses in a courtroom. So uh, there was no reasonable doubt anywhere around. And uh, he... Uh, he was African American. They were white. We saved his life. I hope you're impressed. It was uh, not easy. One thing they did is they brought a judge in from Lake County to try the case, just so that even if the, you didn't know the judge, it's just for you know not to have the appearance of impropriety. I right. think that that made sense. But it was very complicated to deal with the politics of it, and some of the politics were quite surprising. I mean, for example. My client got very angry with us uh, for trying to save him because he wanted to get the death penalty because then it would go to the Illinois Supreme Court. They would declare divorce against God's law and he would be a martyr. You may now be getting an idea of what the defense might have been. So there was that. But I also started to get very bizarre mail uh, from men's rights people. Uh, There were bumper stickers that said, you know, my client had a point. Wow. I, I, it was very, very strange yeah. uh, uh, dealing with that and dealing with the um, amount of media attention. And this is, you know, I tried this case quite some time ago, so it was before social media. I'm sure it would have been much worse with social media. Right. I think this kind of ties back into the point that we started on is that people equate you with your client in some ways, that you were getting this fan mail, that, you know, you're defending the the just right person. And on the other side, you have the people who are, you are the demon who are defending this person. Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, and, uh, it, you know, there was a, 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 you know, a life verdict and it, 
the two sets of victims' families, the attorney's family and the judge's family, were very, very different um, in how they responded to the defense and to to us. Uh, the judge's family were – they never said they were against the death penalty, but I had the feeling that they were mm. for perhaps religious reasons. I'm not sure. Mm. And they were very understanding and made a point of speaking to us. And the attorney's family – in particular, his brother was uh, very angry. And when the jury said no death, um, the sheriffs had to keep him from assaulting me in court, which never actually made it into the newspapers, which is also interesting what actually makes it into the paper and what doesn't. And that's probably a good place for us to take a break. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. Need a lawyer? Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. So, Andrea, something we were discussing uh, briefly when we were on break was how you, as a, an expert in this field, can make the difficult transition between the first phase of the trial, where the jury is determining whether your client is innocent or guilty of the crime, to the second phase of the trial, where if he's convicted, the jury is then deciding whether to impose capital punishment. And from an outsider's perspective, I just imagine that would be really difficult because in the first phase of the trial, Assuming you weren't making an insanity defense or something like that, you were arguing this guy didn't do it. And then in the second phase, you're arguing, okay, okay, he did it, but you shouldn't execute him because of X, Y, or Z reason. That seems really difficult to me. How do you manage that? Well, first of all, you don't say, okay, he did it. Okay. <laughs> you have to face it. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking right now of a case where the it was a question of identification and you know, we fought very hard for an acquittal and didn't get it, which wasn't particularly a surprise. And uh, so at the opening of the penalty phase, I just told the jury we fought very hard because this evidence is insufficient because we believe that the identifications are faulty and that you shouldn't have relied on them and that he shouldn't have been convicted. That being said, you heard the evidence, you worked hard, you thought about it, you deliberated, and you disagree with us. Mm -hmm. So I have to accept your verdict because I'm an officer of the court, but I also want you to know I do accept your verdict. Whether I agree with it or not, I accept it. And now you have to make a decision of what kind of punishment is appropriate for my client. And it wouldn't be fair if I didn't tell you who he is because how would you make that decision? So let me tell you who he is. That was very smooth. I get the impression that you've done this once or twice. Well, and I've taught it a lot yeah. um, because it's the, the the first. There's been a lot of sort of experimenting that hasn't worked over the years. Uh, you can't 
say, you know, you can't say, you know, on the one hand, he didn't do it. Oops, just kidding. You know, I mean, that is talking about sides right. of your mouth and, and the, the jury will punish you. Some people have this idea, well, you have one lawyer who does the, the trial and then if they lose, then you have a different lawyer do the penalty phase. But I just to don't. To avoid the credibility problem. And I just don't agree with that. I think yeah. you've got to face the fact that the jury has rejected you and you have to be respectful of that. Mm-hmm. You just have to be, even if you disagree. So let's talk um, about where the country is right now on the death penalty issue. She's rolling her eyes for our audience. <laughs> no, that was a deep sigh. I don't know okay. I All right. <laughs> um, 29 states, I think, still have the capital punishment on the books, at least. Yes. Uh, the federal government still does and the military still does. 11 of those 29 states, though, have a moratorium officially in place, um, which is usually an intermediary step toward full abolition. Uh, More than a third of the states that have the death penalty haven't used it in more than a decade, many of them much longer. I saw one state that hasn't used it in over 50 years, even though it's still on the books. And then interestingly, something else I saw was that the map of states that retain capital punishment roughly matches the electoral map, which uh, by and by that, I mean that the quote unquote red states, particularly in the south, retain capital punishment in the bluer states either have abolished it or have a moratorium in place. I was wondering, what does that tell you as someone who's in this field about the politics behind capital punishment? Well, uh, more conservative folks tend to favor death penalty. I mean, they just just do, and they tend to be more uh, retributive. Retributive? Retributive. I said it wrong. There it is. and uh, and so that is an unsurprising, mm. but it's also part of the history of our civil war and of the slaveholding states. Those things continue on till today, however much people wish to deny that. And if we have any doubts about that, watching what has happened in our political world in the last few years um, with all of the racist tropes that are everywhere Mm -hmm. that people used to be at least a little embarrassed about, uh, they're not embarrassed about anymore. So that's a big part of it. Another big part of it is the the sense that I think some people have that there isn't enough control. They don't have enough control on what's going on in their world. And so they want to lock up people and throw away the key. They in the Philippines they admire Duterte for extrajudicial killing of anyone who uses drugs, right? I'm, there, there are people who feel that way, because, and, and it has to do with a sense of being out of control and not being heard. And that is something that some very cynical politicians have played to. It's also a way of uh, diverting people's attention from the very real problems we're facing. It is harder to talk about climate change than it is to talk about bad guys who kill people. If you ask most people if there is a really serious crime problem in our country, they would tell you yes, but that's actually not true statistically. We are uh, down violent – crime has been down by 30, 35 percent in the last 20 years. Um, Almost all criminal actions uh, have something to do with personal use of drugs or sale of drugs, usually small amounts. Um, The facts are simply not – in favor of that. Do you think that ignorance plays a role in 
the pro-death penalty opinions? Or do you think that even if people were educated about how many times an innocent person is put on death row or how the faults in the system or the actual facts of some of these crimes, that it would change anything? You know, when I... uh when I was a finalist to be the, the dean uh, at Valparaiso, um, a lot of people sort of asked me this question in one way or another, uh, given that I was from Chicago, which was, you know, can you talk to Republicans? I mean, that was mm. – they didn't quite put it like that, but was kind of – there was kind of that that view. And what I said to them, who do you think is on my jury? Who do you think I'm talking to all the time? I have learned that just because people – might not agree with something that's very important to me and very central to me, which is the power of redemption, the belief that every life matters and that no one is only the worst thing they've ever done. I believe that to my core, but I don't think people who don't believe that are bad people or evil or stupid. I just think they need to know the stories. Now, some people won't listen. They're shut down. They're just not going to hear you. But most people will listen if given the opportunity and if given some measure of respect. And I feel that at our core, all of us want our children to be safe. All of us want education to be good. Nobody wants to see the Amazon burn. All of us have some basic things we hold in common. And those are the things that I reach for in learning my client's story, in telling my client's story, and trying to reach people with whom I fundamentally disagree, but I do respect. Why do you believe so deeply that the death penalty is wrong? There are a lot of reasons, some of them just from watching how it works and doesn't work. Sure. But um, But do you believe it's inherently wrong? If we could come up with a system by some miracle, you know, I know this will never be the case, that only executed people who were unquestionably guilty of these heinous crimes. Would you support it in that instance, or would you still be opposed to it? I'd still be opposed to it because I believe there is such a thing as redemption. I've seen it too often not to know that it's true. I'm not saying that there aren't people that are so damaged that we cannot have them among us. They're, they're just unable to control themselves, they have frontal lobe brain damage, they have all kinds of things. I know that that's the case, but it's the case much less than I think the general public thinks because of entertainment, uh, overemphasis on crime, because of local news, overemphasis on crime, because it's easier to tell the story of a good guy and a bad guy than to tell a story of people that are sort of a little of each. Mm. Um, that requires a little bit more time to do. And because... May I tell you a story that sort of sums this up? Oh, I was representing a guy. His name is William. And he was charged in a double homicide, home invasion, terrible, awful case. And when I say terrible and awful, I mean that the rumor in the neighborhood was that this older couple had money. They broke into their house, tortured the wife in front of the husband to try to... It it was... Terrible. Sounds like in cold blood. It was terrible. Yeah. Okay. And my client wasn't the person who actually dealt the fatal blow, but it it, it doesn't matter. He was 
deeply involved, and it was a terrible crime. But my client, um, my client came from a terrible background, too. He'd grown up in a small town in Mississippi, and um, I don't know how much you know about uh, child abuse, but sometimes what will happen is a parent will pick one child, and that's the child that gets it. Mm. And this was William. He didn't have clothes or shoes most of the time. He still had belt buckle welts on his back from beatings. He had places where there was no skin uh, because it had been ripped off by uh, hot wax. I mean, it was really bad. So he ran away when he was like 13, I want to say, maybe 14, around that age. And came to where his brother was here in Chicago. And I don't know what your judgment was like when you were 13, but mine was not great. Mine was bad until I was 30. <laughs> I mean, remember how you wanted to be cool? Yeah. Yeah. I was an egghead and that was just that. But anyway, I... Um, he came here and his brother was a drinker and he began drinking and then he began using drugs and then he became an addict and then he got, you know, this is what happened to him. Okay. So um, I wanted, you know, I was talking to him at the jail and I wanted to talk to him about his father and the, the abuse. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you're talking to somebody, but they like, they're starting to rock, you know, they you just have the feeling they're going to run out of the room and just shut down if you keep going. So I said, you know what, William, why don't we talk about this another day? And like the he kind of just, you know, a couple of deep breaths later. And I said, I said to him, um, I'll tell you what, let's talk about what you'll do with your time. You know, if you're spared the death penalty, what positive things can you do with your time? So what would that be? And he looked at me and he said, um, Miss Lyon, I'd really like to learn to read. I mean, where was somebody when he was five? Now, I, I know I'm supposed to be a lawyer and tough and all that, but of course I got him a tutor, and by the time we went to trial, he was reading at the fourth grade level. And he didn't get the death penalty. And and I got a letter from him, I don't know, I want to say maybe almost a decade after the case. And in it, he said that he, he was at a Menard prison was working as a cook there, and they, I don't know, I think they pay him a dollar a day or something, some little tiny bit of money, um, and he wrote this letter and he said, you know, I, I know it doesn't make up for what I did, but I just want you to know that I use the money that I make to support two children in Africa. Power of redemption. The power of redemption. So when you were in front of the jury, I presume you were telling them all this, mm -hmm. and the strategy to be too much of a lawyer about it in the face of a story that powerful and emotional, but the strategy is um, pity? The strategy is empathy. To think about all the things that most of us were fortunate enough to have, parents that loved us, decent schools, safe environments to grow up in, not getting beaten and having wax put on you until your skin got pulled off. I mean, you know, just getting people to listen is not to say that what William did wasn't a choice and wasn't a crime, but it's a different choice than if I'd made that choice. Mm. I think it's allowing the jury to see your client as a human and not just someone who committed a crime. I, I think it's just we, we just take a walk together through his life and, and just look around 
and give people a chance to understand. That's kind of, that's kind of what I do. It's a good thing to do. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by courtfiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. Courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. Courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. One of the things that we had talked to you about before we came in was there's a case that was in Illinois recently, Brett Christensen. He, um, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because Illinois has a moratorium on the death penalty. We've actually abolished it. But he was being tried. Uh, it's a capital case. And for our listeners, um, a little background on this. Brent Christensen was a student at the University of Illinois. He uh, killed another student, admitted to it openly, and his trial recently wrapped up in Peoria. And so we wanted to talk to you a little bit and have you kind of shed some light for our viewers about how do cases like this happen? How is How are we having capital cases in Illinois when we've abolished the death penalty? And what does a case like this look like? So as was mentioned earlier, there are 29 states that still have the death penalty, but that means that there are quite a few that do not. But the federal government can ask for the death penalty anywhere as long as they can establish federal jurisdiction for the crime, which is not particularly difficult to do, especially if a gun is involved, because if a gun is involved, it probably uh, cross state lines and you get jurisdiction that way. I'm representing somebody right now here in Chicago who is charged with a with a death penalty case. Uh, and um, he knew that he was coming to federal court, but he didn't know why. And I met him for the first time and told him that they were asking for the death penalty. He didn't know. Well, he started to cry. His mother collapsed in my arms. Uh, she said, I thought we didn't have the death penalty here anymore. And I said, well, the federal government can ask for it anywhere. How do you handle that conversation with a client? Carefully. It's it's very difficult, and people react differently. Sometimes people shut down. Sometimes people are very emotional. Sometimes they get angry. Once you give a client that kind of news, and I was very worried about him that he might harm himself. And I was very worried about his mother as well, who I was concerned was less than stable to start with, just even just from meeting her right then. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that's difficult. And explaining this dual jurisdiction stuff to to people just doesn't make sense or that double jeopardy isn't really double jeopardy. Oh, you, <laughs> you don't just hand them the Federalist Papers? Yeah, and say, hey, no, it's very complicated no? okay. to do. One of the things that uh, I know some people that are Federal Resource Council, which is a, a group of, of lawyers that help those of us who are doing death cases throughout the country and just kind of keep track of everything. And I'm told that uh, this administration has been asking for the death penalty in many, many, many cases. Uh, uh, to, to quote Kevin, he said it was like reigning federal capital defendants. And in particular, there seems to be an interest in targeting states without the death penalty. Why do you think that is? 
I assume it's a political decision. I, I, I can't answer the question because I don't have the information, but it is unsurprising to me. Okay, let's talk about something more lighthearted. Okay, then. Let, let's go to Stranger Than Legal Fiction. All right. Uh, game we play at the end of each episode. The rules are very simple. Nick, did you do your homework on this one? I did do my homework. Awesome, because so, like half my co-hosts don't, so I'm really pleased to hear that. <laughs> All right, so the rules are very simple. Nick and I have done a little digging around the interwebs to find a strange law that is still on the book somewhere, but probably shouldn't be. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz each other. And you, Andrea, on which one is real and which one is not. Are you ready to play? Uh, I think so. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Nick, why don't you lead us off? All right. So my two laws are both from Louisiana, uh, New Orleans specifically. The first one is that in New Orleans, you cannot get married on the same day as a family funeral. The second law is that in New Orleans, a fortune teller cannot officiate your wedding. Which one do you think is the real law? Those are good. New Orleans is or Louisiana is so weird. Apologies <laughs> to any audience members Boy, of Louisiana. Those are, those are uh, interesting. I I'm going to guess the fortune teller is the real one. Yeah, I'm going to go with that too. Yeah, <laughs> it just seems very mysterious and New Orleans like. And you are both correct. Apparently, in New Orleans, a fortune teller or a tarot card reader cannot officiate a wedding. Wow. I feel like there's a lawsuit there. <laughs> and you just you sort of wonder what caused somebody to go and propose and such a law. Right. right? right. Like what happened? Right. Like you're you're marrying someone, you're like, by the way, I'm a fortune teller and this isn't gonna work out. So but maybe that was it. Yeah. Like a, what is it? The the heartbalm statutes kind of yeah. thing. Like <laughs> All right. Second round, option number one. Both are death penalty centric. Okay, then. In Hungary, a person can be executed for hanging out with gypsies, specifically for being in the company of gypsies for one month or longer. So option number one, hanging out with gypsies. Option number two, in Papua New Guinea, tribal law allows for a person to be executed for sorcery. Seen a lot of shifting eyes around this table. I'm thinking... I'm going to go with Papua New Guinea. Is the real one? Mm-hmm. That was also what I was going to go with. Okay, that's too so. easy. What are we thinking? Why? Um, my reason for that is that I believe that Hungary has abolished the death penalty. Oh, so you just know? That's cheating. I'm sorry. Background <laughs> knowledge is not fair. Oh, I'm sorry. And Hungary, Hungary's like sliding into right-wing dictatorship well, right now. I thought that was stay like... that way, but right now I think it, it is one of the countries that doesn't have capital punishment. I could be wrong, but I think that's right. I think that's right, too, because it's part of the EU. Yes. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I thought yeah, that wasn't quite as slick as I imagined it would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say this, though. The gypsy one was a real law in 18th century England. I, I I have no no doubt about that. I mean, just being a gypsy was a crime. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in Papua New Guinea, sorcery is not officially one of the reasons you can be executed, but it as I, I qualified it specifically to say tribal law because it very often is. In fact, there's an uptick in lynching of suspected sorcerers there lately. Unfortunately, they tend to be young women who are suspected for it. So. Actually, if I was trying to end this episode on a lighter note, that's probably a really bad example. That was not your best one. No, no, no. it really wasn't. I'm not really having a great yeah. day. 
we should have switched. I we should have gone with our their fortune telling heart bomb laws. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, maybe next here's time. here's a, here's a weird law that I found. Yeah. Um, so when I when I was teaching at University of Michigan, I read my way through all the criminal statutes because I was starting a clinic there. And there are a number of crimes that you would not consider as something that should be a crime. For example, did you know that you can get up to a year in jail for misrepresenting how many apples are in a barrel? I did. Yeah. No. <laughs> There's no. no way you do we know that. that. Do we know the story behind that? Um, I don't know the story behind it, but I bet it's funny. Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> It's got to be. And thank you for ending things on a lighter note. Okay. That's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Andrea Lyon of Lyon Law, for this arresting and thought-provoking conversation. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-host, Nicole Kahn, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Ricardo Islas on Sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. <laughs>